The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Well, before we pray, we usually have a time of prayer before the message, or I'm just going to include that in the message because I'm also preaching. Let's, uh, our text for this afternoon is in Genesis 2. So why don't you open up to Genesis 2 and I will begin reading there. I'm really going to cover our, uh, from the end of chapter 2 through to uh, verse 7 of chapter 3. I'm going to start reading now just one verse, uh, two verses in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 25. Uh, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And then I'm going to skip down to and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Father, we come this afternoon. Asking that you would meet with us, knowing that you will. Your promises uh, are that you will meet with us and, and feed us, and encourage us and strengthen us through the ministry of your word. And Lord, we live in a context that we often don't understand. And we look at the world around us and it is confusing. And it's, uh, we are often bewildered. We hear the question asked, and we may even ask it at times. Oh, how could there be a God in the middle of such chaos? Could this God be good with such heartache and suffering and difficulty? And yet we know that indeed you transcend your creation. You are far above it. You are holy and righteous and good in every way. We are grateful that into the darkness you brought light and truth and life through your Son. Lord, as we enter into this text this afternoon. May we catch a glimpse of what caused Adam and Eve, once naked and unashamed, to begin covering themselves, filled with shame. Lord, may we be ever grateful that you would enter into this condition to rescue a people for your 
yourself. May we marvel at that and live in gratitude from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is my desire. And at one point, I will preach on shame. I have been preparing for months to preach on shame. Uh, the end of this passage just read, and the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they began covering themselves really is in contrast to verse 25 of chapter, three, of chapter 2, where the man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And in that we see that this context of being not ashamed and being naked uh, comes in the context of the garden. The first message that I preached in relation to shame really talked about the perfection, the purity, and the peace that was found in the garden. And we catch a glimpse of the garden in this absolutely amazing situation that Adam and Eve were created into to find that the creation was for them. It was good. It was peaceful. And it was uh, to bring them great pleasure and God interacted with them in that. And then we see through the fall uh, deception, darkness, and death enter in. And we see Adam and Eve covering themselves in shame. Uh, Pastor Brian regularly speaks on shame as in the Sunday school class particular, and I know coming up in his Sunday School series, he's going to speak more on shame. Uh, the longer I meet with people, and the more that I interact with the difficulties of, of people's lives, the more I understand that shame is at the core of so much of our human experience. In fact, all of humanness prior to the garden was summarized in naked and not ashamed. That was the summary statement of humanness. And then we see the fall and the deception, the rebellion against God. And then we have this summary statement of all humanness that they were, that their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. And there's an extreme contrast. And I just felt before we get into the, uh, unwor the unraveling of shame that we should talk about the fall. It's something we refer to so frequently. And we talk about the consequences of the fall and what happened and, and, and the brokenness of the fall, I thought we should spend some time just working through uh, so we can see with greater clarity um, how our current context comes from uh, what happened during the fall. One of the things that Pastor Brian helped us see when he preached through the Ten Commandments, and he's done that twice since he's been here, is that every commandment is really a seed or the most condensed essence of the fullness of sin that can be connected to that. You shall not murder encompasses all of anger and wrath and, and bitterness and on the negative and on the positive side, all the things that we do to preserve life, and all of that can be connected to this one seed in the Ten Commandments, you shall not kill. And that's really what we have going on here as we read through uh, the fall. That there's these elements, they're briefly touched on, but they're in seed form. And we can see as time progressed and mankind expanded, wickedness also expanded. But it, it can all be connected back to the very beginning essence of things that were occurring during uh, the attack and the fall. Uh, from our first message, um, and some of you weren't here, so I'm just going to briefly remind us that we talked about this perfect condition in the garden. The garden was created in perfect harmony and balance and order. That nothing existed to the detriment of another. That there was 
absolutely perfect condition. Uh, there was nothing that, uh, that existed, and in that existence caused something else to, to be in a poorer condition. And there was absolute balance, peacefulness, shalom in the garden, um, and a pure condition. There was without sin, every thought, everything that happened was pure and righteous and good. Oftentimes, actually almost every time that I meet with a married couple for marriage counseling, I go back to this scene and try to work through what it looked like to be naked and unashamed and to be of one flesh. This otherness, this pure, peaceful otherness where I had only an intent and eyes and consideration of the person and people before me because I had no regard for myself. I was 100% engaged in loving my neighbor perfectly. I had never considered that they would judge me or that I would ever be wanting for anything. And I was completely free in that to give myself 100% for the good of the other person. Well, we see how quickly that was unraveled. Uh, the entire summary statement, again, of the garden was naked and not ashamed. I'm going to cover uh, our text this afternoon in three headings. Really, the crafty attack, the confusing attack, and the catastrophic attack. First of all, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This word crafty in some of your translations will say shrewd or subtle or cunning. It was uh, for kids, this means he was tricky. He was sneaky. You couldn't trust him. He had he, he presented himself as something, but we soon find out that he's something else. He was crafty. Uh, crafty really has at the heart of it uh, a liar. He was a liar. He wanted you to believe something, but there was a lie in there that eventually we find out what is really true. But he came in and they say he's the, he's the most crafty of all the creatures. Um, this would be opposed to or opposite of trustworthy or faithful. And so in the garden previous to that, everything was trustworthy. Everything was faithful. There was, even, there was no concept of crafty. There was no, there was no uh, box to put this idea in of crafty. So when, when Satan came to Adam and Eve, there was, there was no concept. They wouldn't evaluated this conversation as could this potentially be crafty because there was no idea or concept of that until we, this conversation ensued. Um, it is the nature of Satan to be crafty. and Really, that's his greatest danger to all of creation and all of mankind is his craftiness. And we see eventually, that we find out Satan is the father of all lies. He is the great deceiver. It is his fundamental characteristic. But here we have this crafty creature coming in to have this conversation. Satan's craftiness or deception led to an, his intended outcome. Adam and Eve chose to follow the lie rather than the truth. He presented the question, we'll work through the the confusion of the, the conversation, but it worked. He presented one thing, and Adam, Adam and Eve evaluated it and said, seems logical, and, and uh, they, the intended outcome, outcome was exactly what 
uh, he had come for. As a result of this deception and this uh, craftiness, we see that all of creation was then put under the context of deception. Everything became distorted. All of creation, every fiber of creation is now subject to deception and is now suspect in what we, how we understand it. The deception yielded disobedience and that planted a seed in the heart of Adam. And that seed now we know uh, is, is referred to as the heart is deceptive above all things. Who can know it? And that seed of, of deception became ingrained in Adam and, and carried on through the lineage and is now the context in which all mankind are born into. Uh, he would never again be able to fully trust himself or any other human. And we wonder, what is going on around us? Why do we have so many broken things around us? And that, that comes out of this, this first deceptive conversation, this first response to deception, this trusting in deception that permeates into the heart of Adam and now all of his offspring are born into the context of deception. The question for us is never, am I being deceived? A better question for us is, to what extent am I being deceived? We will never have a conversation with a human that does not have a component in the heart of that human of deception. As much as we may intend to be truthful, as much as we may put our hope and trust in others, the reality is that we are all born into deception. We are born into the context of deception. There's deception on the outside, but there's deception within us now as well. Satan is the father of lies, referred to as the great deceiver, the, father, uh, the great father of lies, the deceiver of the whole world. Deception remains Satan's greatest weapon to distort things, to make us believe certain things, or to understand certain things in a certain way. It is uh, Satan's greatest tool. Um, immediately after uh, the re their response to this deception, you see Adam and Eve covering and hiding and blame shifting, which are all products of deception, as they try to represent themselves as something they are not. Uh, this covering, which we will get to when we talk about shame, is really... The first acts of deception. I want you to believe something about me that I know is not true. I'm going to put fig leaves on myself to get you to think something about me that I know in my heart is not true. Please don't see me like I really am. And that's really this feeling of shame that drives a lot of the human experience right now. What was once pure and perfect, filled with trust and without any worry of fear, is now distorted and really in essence, unknowable. We cannot know truth if we live in the context of deception. Everybody that we run into is, is at their heart struggling with deception. And the context of our existence is one of a deceptive Satan that is working his, uh, his schemes. Uh, we can see the process of deception during the attack. And it's interesting to watch the deception play out here. Uh, the deception began the garden during the attack in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, we can see Satan come. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
you will not surely die. Maybe God is tricking you. He actually used Satan, used deception against them before they were deceived. He said, well, there, maybe there's deception, but maybe it's God that's doing the deception. Maybe everything you know in the context of your existence right now is what's deceiving you. And maybe there's something better for you. Uh, in verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And there's an attack on God that God's withholding something for you. You have been deceived indeed. And it's God who's deceiving you. He's been telling you the whole time that he has perfectly provided for you, perfectly good, but he is actually deceiving you. And he's a harsh master. He's keeping from you what would be better. The real blessing comes as you understand that God indeed is deceiving you. Um, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan presents to him. Like, there is a greater advantage if you see truth and you realize that you are being deceived. And he used his deception against them and made them doubt the very character of God and God's promises to them. Well, Eve believed the deception. and Her response we see in, in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, we see that she has just diminished in her mind sin. She said, well, I know that God has forbid this from me, and I know he's warned us against this, but I don't think it's really as bad as he's making it out to be. And I am going to diminish this sin right now in my mind. And in that context, I, I will consider then whether I should take it or not take it. But this craftiness of Satan, the deception of Satan, was to help her in her mind diminish her sin. And that's how Satan still attacks us today. He, we are tempted with things, and in seeing the truth of it, the vileness of it, of rebelling against God, we in our mind diminish it. We say, that's not really such a big thing after all, probably. It, is, it seems like there's good in there for me. And so we see Eve actually working through this. And it's strange, isn't it? Because what are we comparing this to? She saw that the tree was good for food. Compared to what? Compared to death. God said if you eat it, you're going to die. And she has so been deceived, she's actually thinking through, well, yeah, but it might be good for food. Like this temporary, immediate pleasure from eating this. Compared to death. What deception. Yet we find ourselves processing sin in this very same way. Continuing on, and that... And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Uh, again, she had minimized this and now she's justifying it. Not only is it good, but if I'm justifying this action, there is going to be a good outcome of this. There could even be a profitable outcome for me. I could become wise. We see Satan deceiving her and now she's uh, it's feeding her own pride and she's justifying her decision. It's a, there's a desire is good and, and wise. And really, at this point, she's saying, this might even be an honorable pursuit. Then I will be wise like God. And so we see how deception works, and we see Satan working through this deception. And this should be very telling to us. If we start having these conversations with ourselves, where we're minimizing sin, 
where we are uh, looking that there might be blessing and disobedience, where we are justifying our actions because of the out, the the outcome that we are that we're uh, convincing ourselves would be better than obeying God. <coughs> we should see very clearly this is an attack from the deceiver. This is a this may be coming out of my own deceptive heart or an, or a direct attack from the deceiver. But this is not true. This is not true. In one act of trickery, Satan just distorted things enough that the humans have to ask, is what I know true, or am I being deceived? And really, at this point, everything from this point on is caught in this this, uh, turmoil. Is what I know, or what I think, or what is my experience now, is it true, or am I being deceived? And we are born into this context. And we still live in this context where everything has to be, we have to ask about everything because everything has the potential to deceive us now. We might ask, how could she be so naive? I mean, really, this fruit. What a naive thing for her to be caught up in. But even in that thought, we can only think it in the context of our lives, filled with deception. She didn't know deception was a thing. She didn't know it was even a possibility. She didn't understand what she was processing because it was the first time that this had ever been presented to humans in any way. And so we can see where if at that point everything had been trustworthy, everything said was absolutely true, could be, could be relied on when this, when this deception came, we could see with Eve that, oh, she might have processed through these things knowing that Trusting, right, that what she was being told was true. One of the things I think it's important for us to think, when we think of the context of our lives and deception right now, uh, I was actually shocked when I started thinking about all the ways and all the, that we describe deception and lying. And if you think about every sphere of our life, there's a segment of it that we have to use a special vocabulary to talk about potential deception in that category. And we use words like fraud, betrayal, hypocrisy, false news, lying, cheating, imposters, treason, false advertising, phishing, hoax, racket, a ripoff, a lemon, uh, spamming, extortion, con, shell game, shady, snow job, sucker game, hustle, gaslighting, crazy making, spying, manipulating, adultery, users and players, exaggeration, knockoffs, investigation, interrogation, all of those have at this essence this concept of deception. If we think about every area of our life, there's a vocabulary to explain to us what it would look, what we would experience in deception in that particular realm. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. There's a vocabulary that helps you describe uh, the deceptive part of that industry. Scotty Brown's working on a house right now. Why is he working on a house? Because the prior contractor was deceptive and the house about fell down. Every area of our life, we, we, uh, there's a vocabulary to talk about the deception that could enter into that experience. Uh, we, we desire deception. Um, a lot of our experience as humans is, is really desiring deception. We, want, we don't want truth to be what we are experiencing. Uh, we want to alleviate the pain. We want to alter our mood. 
we want to put ourselves in a different state, and often it's a deceptive state. And we use things like drugs and uh, stimulants, uh, a lot of our recreational drugs. We're putting ourselves in these artificial moods. Actually, we're volunteering to say, listen, I, I'm not happy with, or content with the way I feel right now. I would like some stimulus to change that. And we actually put ourselves in these states of deception. We're entertained by deception. We love fiction and entertainment. And, and Disneyland is, is just a great uh, deception where we go and we're just enthralled with all this. And you talk to Pastor Don who worked there, you realize behind the scenes it's not so happy and not so wonderful. But it enthralls us. We want to enter into the state where we are, where we are uh, amused, where we're taken out of the, the difficulties and the reality of our experience uh, for a brief period. Within each of our hearts is described as deceitful. Uh, we don't even know our own thoughts. We cannot trust our own thoughts and our emotions and the way we're process, processing things. Our desires and our passions are characterized as deceitful. Uh, we trust our senses, our sight and our feeling and our hearing, and yet we find out that they're very unreliable. Uh, an eyewitness to a crime is still pretty unreliable. Uh, they, they, we fill in gaps. As one psychiatrist I was listening to was talking about how we, we observe an intersection and we actually only take in about 50 to 60% of the activity that's going on. We see the car approaching and we look away. We fill in the gaps that that car's stopping. We look over here, we see this thing happening in the light and we fill in the gaps. We only actually connect to about 60% of what's real, and we fill in the gaps with the rest, and our, our instincts are not reliable because of that. And we depend way too much on our senses sometimes to be what we can rely on and is trustworthy, but we live in the context of the very deceptive world. Affluence actually brings greater deception. We do not, as a culture, want to talk about the reality of death and suffering. And uh, we can bring this huge shroud of deception around us and think about being young and healthy and life continuing on. If you live in a third world country, though, and you're experiencing poverty and hunger, that, that shroud of deception is very thin because you see death. And the reality of our experience and our existence as humans is much more present. But we tend to pull this shroud over. We don't even like to talk about death. And we want to believe that there's, there's solutions to all of our health needs. But the reality is we are dying. Everybody that we know right now in our life is in the process of dying, and many of them are going to die in our lifetime. Yet we don't want to live in that reality. We want to live in this deception. If, we, if that shroud, and as that shroud of deception becomes thick and bolstered through uh, affluence, it pushes off our need to deal with our soul. And we can live in the here and now and we can delight in all of the things that, that this world kind of brings us. They're all temporary and really a facade. We are deceived. Our hearts are, are filled with deception. We are born into Adam's family, which is a deceitful family, and have an undying allegiance to the great deceiver. John 8 says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because he, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out his own character. He is a liar and the father of lies. 
the greatest deception in our lives is what we read in Isaiah 57. It's actually idolatry. Worshipping the creation rather than the creator? What foolishness! What deception that there's any power, any anything that this created thing that we're worshipping offers us, and yet we put so much of our hope and attention in the things of this world. Well, it is Jesus. As he enters into this deception of humanity and the distortion of creation that brings any hope of truth, Deception is too great for anyone to uncover on their own or to escape. We are caught up in this context of deception that was entered in at the fall. Jesus had to enter into this deception filled with grace and truth. The Spirit must pull the deception back and give us eyes to see that we would behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and know truth. James 1.8 says, Of His own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. John references uh, truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You will know truth, and the truth will set you free. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. It is Christ and Christ only that gives us any hope to know truth. His word, the Logos, comes and he gives us a an absolute standard where we can now evaluate the deception around us. And we should be suspect of everything that does not align itself with the Word of God because this is the, our only hope to know truth because we are so caught up both inside and outside in this context of deception. We have seen how Satan uses deception as the heart of his attack. And let's see what some of the effects of that deception are. My second point this afternoon is a confusing attack. It created confusion. After I finish my outline, I kind of like the C word clouded. That clouded uh, because it connects better with the outworking of that. But we'll say a confusing attack. In verse uh, 1, you see, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I have to almost diagram that question to come up with the right answer because of the double negatives in it. Okay. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. It's, a, it's hard to even understand how to answer that, not caught up in the moment, not having to answer this creature that's questioning me of these things. And it's confusing. And we would say, I think Eve worked through it and came to a conclusion. But we can see as she had to pause and think through what is the answer to this question, we can see, oh, she began to be confused. Deception had set in and things became darkened for her. She began to be clouded in her understanding and confused. She answers, and the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Okay, that's what you'd say. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And she gets most of it right, but she adds law to it and really says she can't even touch it. And we can see in the little uh, part of that answer, 
that where she adds to it. She has had to process through uh, what did God say, and then she eventually is caught up in why would God say that? She had never probably even thought about it before. She was had such beauty and such rich provision around her in the garden that she had to never consider that tree. But Satan made her consider it, and not only consider the tree, but the restrictions on the tree. And if there's restrictions on the tree, could the one that restricted her from these things actually be good? And as Pastor Brian said, cast a dark shadow on God at that point. And she has to process through, why would he restrict or withhold these things from me? If he's good and wants the best for me, why would he keep me back from this thing? The confusion really opened the death blow door uh, where Satan could then come in and begin twisting things. But it was as she processed that in confusion where she was, she began to be deceived. God must be withholding something from me. Why would God withhold something that would be good for me? She was confused, and the confusion led to her questioning God. What started as Eve taking her eyes off of God and the beauty and the blessings that he had provided turns quickly into a blindness. And we can see in this seed, as she becomes clouded and confused, that it it develops into a spiritual blindness. What happens when she takes? Her eyes are open. But it's not that she sees more. It's that now everything is clouded. And it's, and it's she's overcome with this blindness, this spiritual blindness. <clears throat> and really, that grows to a greater extent and we actually find out of this seed flows a darkness that settles over all of creation. And not only is she blind, but there's a darkness that we now find ourselves living in. The condition of humanness is now a condition of blindness. We are blind to the spiritual truths. All of creation is now referred to as the kingdom of darkness. The confusion led to both dark, uh, darkness and blindness. What was once clear is now dark. The separation from good and evil has broken, and the kingdom of darkness was inaugurated. It's like the fog settled in. If you've ever watched a, a movie that goes back and forth in time, sometimes they use color and black and white to differentiate the time. And you'll be in a vivid color watching it, and then it fades into a black and white, and all of a sudden you realize in a different time. But as that happens, the mood changes in the movie. And it's like, it's like even today as we, as you can see the clouds kind of settle in. And that's what happened in the garden. As Eve succumbed to this, a fog just kind of rolled in. And what was vibrant and beautiful and luscious around her began darkened. And the fog settled in. And all of a sudden she finds herself just succumbed with this darkness. And the kingdom of darkness has been inaugurated. And that's the context in which all of mankind finds themselves now, that we do not see clearly. We are blind. Second uh, Corinthians says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And what are they blind to? The glory of God in the gospel. He blinded their minds. They realized that they had been, been deceived, and now they were in the context of darkness. But it is Jesus who enters into this darkness. It is Jesus who comes into the context of this darkness 
in this blindness that actually gives sight. Jesus is not only truth, Jesus is light. And in the context of the brokenness that flows out of the fall, we need this light, this pure light that, uh, that shines brightly and helps us begin to sort out, navigate our way. Uh, Jesus is referred to the light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John 12, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. First John, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. But we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. Ephesians, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And we see the descriptions of Christ show us and point us back to the very fundamental brokenness that flowed out of the garden. That as deception came and as the confusion set in and, the, and Eve turned her eyes from God and became clouded in her vision, that Jesus comes in to provide clarity, to bring light into this dark situation. Darkness really represents the evil context of all of creation. That there is evil everywhere. A darkness. The kingdom of darkness. Jesus comes into the darkness and opens the eyes of the blind, giving them spiritual light. He who is pure light condescended into the darkness of creation. Take to himself the curse of the darkness. As he hung on the cross, darkness overcame the earth, but Jesus' light overpowered the darkness. And he was victorious. He is the light, and as we come through Him, we are light as well. So we've seen in the attack, we've seen this uh, this deceit that comes in, this darkness that comes in. My last point is this is catastrophic. The attack is catastrophic. My mom has often told me that there are some mistakes we make that we never recover from. They are catastrophic. And we see that in verse 7. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. That is not a good statement. There is in the essence that they knew they were naked, a sense that they knew they were undone. They were knew they were vulnerable. They were exposed. They were unrighteous. They were guilty. In all the context of the guilty sense of of all of uh, all mankind flows out of that statement. It is catastrophic. Good was evident to them in the garden, but now we see the difference between good and evil. And what I once had to compare evil to is now gone, and all as I have is evil. My eyes are open to it. The kingdom of darkness, ruled by the prince of darkness, set up his reign, and all of creation is subject to the results of the attack were catastrophic, as God said they would be. Now looming in the horizon, in a cloud of pending doom, death awaits. Spiritual death immediately, but pending death physically. And it flows out of this catastrophic attack. 
Adam's eyes were open as the evil permeated creation, bringing with it the consequences of evil, which is decay and death and destruction. As evil was chosen, the promised consequences were now realized, and death became the context of our human existence. The gates of hell were thrown open to accommodate the dying. Did you need that prior to this? Now the gates are open, wide open to receive those that will die and perish in their sin and their darkness and their deception and to receive them in. All of creation was subject to futility and death. The attack was catastrophic for humanity and all of creation. All creation is now in bondage to death and subject to futility. A hopelessness as death is now the weapon of Satan, adding a timeline and surety to death and damnation. And now we calculate our existence from beginning to end. And end is a peril. Michelle posted a video about suicide. It was wonderful because it's the thing that we all have to fear, death. It's all We all have that in common. We are all moving, progressing to one final outcome, death. And it flows out of this catastrophic attack as God promised. This would be the result. Romans 8, 20 and 21 say, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Into this death enters life. Jesus is life. Entering into this deception, uh, but separate... Uh, for his own, not for his, not for our glory, but for his own glory, enters into this deception, enters into the darkness, and enters into this context of death. He superintends over deception for his own good and utilizes it to take him to the very place that he needs to go to conquer death, the cross, and willingly goes, allowing the deception to have the work in the in the hearts of the men that were driving the nails and declaring him guilty. Entering into the darkness is light, our only hope, only place of purity. He subjected himself to death, but was raised victorious to life. Jesus is our only hope for all that was broken in the fall. The deception, the darkness, and the death that flow out of uh, the attacks during the fall and the response is Christ. But we can see now, hopefully, that when we see Adam and Eve realize they are naked and they begin to hide and cover themselves up, it is because they realize immediately what was broken. They experienced deception. They knew of lies. They were now aware of evil. The darkness had settled in. They understood the context of death and decay and destruction around them. And it's like the garden was just starting to unfold. My analogy when I talk to people uh, and work through this with them is like, if you've ever seen a YouTube video where there's this little forklift driver in the, in the middle of this huge warehouse with these very high shelving units containing all this product, and he bumps into the first one and it tips the shelving unit over, and they just begin to cascade, just all of the product, thousands of, and thousands of dollars being just decimated. And he gets to stand there and watch it. There's nothing he can do. And I think that's the feeling 
that caused Adam and Eve to co begin covering themselves. Like, oh, look what we have done. And there's this sense of shame that sets in as they feel the guilt of what they have done. And that sense of shame is still a driving influence in our human experience. So as I have opportunity to preach in the future, we're going to work through the responses to shame, covering our nakedness, uh, fear of being rejected, and desiring to be cleansed as we feel unclean. Three ways of shame, uh, through uncleanness, through nakedness, and through rejection. It's how most people are commonly experiencing. We'll work through that because it still permeates our human existence. But we're thankful for Christ, that he would enter in, that he would be truth, that he would be light, that he would be life, the very thing that we need to rescue us from this current condition of deception, darkness, and death. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful, uh, hopeful. We hear of the glory of Christ, that he would be willing to enter in into deception as truth. He'd point us in the way he would be truth for us. He would enter into the darkness and be light so that we can see, we can, we can have a way and enter into death and experience the, the death that we deserve and be victorious over it, that we would have eternal life with you. Oh Lord, may that be our hope. May we rejoice in that and live our lives in gratitude that we were not left like the rest of mankind in this deceptive, dark, dying world. Lord, may we not be confused either as we see the effects of this around us, the devastation and the heartache and the suffering of a people caught up in this deception, caught up in this darkness, caught up in this, this dying world. Oh Lord, may we proclaim Christ that they would turn to you in faith and be rescued from it as well. We pray in Jesus' name. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.